0: bars granola bars energy bars nut bars they're all held together with sugar as a binding agent and i was like nope so i was told you know multiple times by multiple kind of labs and co-packers not not possible like nothing's going to hold it together
1: this is c2c where we cover innovation in the food and cbg business from conception to consumption Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Today, I'm excited to have as my guest, Susie York, who is CEO of Love Good Fats, a very interesting company and product that you're going to hear a lot about today. Uh, Susie, welcome to the podcast.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Gary. I'm thrilled to be here.
1: All right. Well, uh, Susie, why don't you start telling our listeners a little bit about your personal background? How did you, you get into the food and the innovation business?
0: Well, I, I started uh, my career at Procter and Gamble in marketing uh, now 30 years ago after I graduated from an electrical engineering degree at, at McGill, so there's a bit of a, a, a side turn there. But I then stayed in consumer packaged goods for my entire career and I went from um, from Procter and Gamble to food companies like uh, PepsiCo with and Frito-Lay and Heinz and Conagra. And uh, and then in supplements, um, in the last 10 years, I was a, a VP of marketing at two different multinationals in weight loss, uh, including Weight Watchers. So I kind of, you know, did the range of CPG and then really weight loss the last 10 years um, and moved into more some consulting in the last couple of years um, and in the natural space. So I had, you know, four for kind of roles of, of uh, retain roles of helping well, between 10 and 100 million uh, uh, revenue size companies as they kind of part-time pedo marketing. And that really gave me a good flavor for both Canada and the U.S. in the natural space. So they were startups. They were started by entrepreneurs. I think I've worked for eight different CEO entrepreneurs in that time, and then I had this kind of dream tucked under my arm since i am 15 of one day starting my own company. I don't know if I believed myself as much, um, but I was getting close to 50 and then, you know, I, all of the stars aligned where I I had saved up a little bit of money, even, even though I'm a single mom and living in Toronto and have bills to pay. Um, and I had an idea. And then I had, you know, a little bit more time on my hands because my kids were were a little bit more independent, uh, not a, you know, not as much as I'd, I'd like them to be, because it's been a, a crazy three years. But, you know, all the stars align with kind of those three things. And then uh, the idea was really to bring good fats to life by launching a brand, because that's what I know how to do to kind of use brands to change consumer behaviors. And uh, it all kind of came together really fast and really well.
1: That's uh, a that's really interesting background. We're gonna jump into your company, but before we do that, let me just ask, Procter & Gamble, they're known, Susie, as really being the gold standard for CPG marketing. Uh, do you agree with that, and how did that help you?
0: Yeah, I would I for sure, you know, looking back now, I absolutely w- will say that the discipline approach I have as a marketer is grounded in my 6 years at P&G. It was in the nineties and a time where the Canadian head office really was, was driving everything. We had, you know, our, our, like our own R and D lab and own council and regulatory packaging and design was all kind of done, um, with the Canadian head office. And, and since then, multinationals have moved globally and you don't have the same richness of learnings of just, you know, I'm going to, either launch a brand in Canada on my own or, 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 um, or right now the world has moved to kind of picking up other brands from other countries or, you know, Canada would pick up the U S innovation. So I, I was lucky to learn in a time where we had our own little micro microzone and hub of, of kind of figuring out it by, by on our own and, we didn't even know the U.S. phone numbers of our of our peers on the mm. same brands. Um, I became a bit of a change agent, so I kind of was recruited uh, to go and help Frito Lay and launch Tostitos into Canada. And then Doritos was declining, and Heinz ketchup was declining, and uh, Weight Watchers was also declining for ten years. So I, I kind of found my groove by being this. Entrepreneur, change agent who kind of goes in on some brands that are struggling to grow, and the reason I think I became pretty good at doing that is my my first you know my first grounding time at P and G, and I can I can tell you that all the tools or my team can tell you that all the tools that I use today are literally the same tools you know our brand positioning statement and our creative briefs and our our workbacks would be a uh, all of the similar tools that we had back, you know, 25 years ago, they still apply today.
1: Great, great background. So let's talk about today. Tell, tell our listeners about your company. Uh, love good fats. What's, uh, what's, what's the mission? Is this a mission driven company? What's your mission? What's your strategy? What makes you different?
0: Yeah, well, for sure. It's absolutely a mission driven company. It's, uh, the, the idea and the, the grandiose plan is to change how we eat to embrace good fats, cut out sugar and uh, feel really good about it. And I'm, you know, I'm now 53, so I grew up in a generation where fats were given such a bad rap. And instead, we were, you know, fed kind of uh a lot of processed foods and lots and lots of sugar, especially in the low-fat products. So once I read Nina Teicholt's book, The Big Fat Surprise, I realized myself, who had followed for 20 years a low-fat diet, I realized, oh, man, that was not a good move. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, somebody has got to get the word out and I, I value books and podcasts. You know, I think all of the big names that we know in nutrition, uh, have now kind of written books on, on fats and low carb and the problems with sugar So I didn't want to just be, you know, kind of pile on and write another book. I said, no, no, like I can help drive change by coming up with a brand and filling the shelves with delicious products that are loaded with good fats, but have very, very little sugar. So that was the grandiose plan. I had my three page PowerPoint under my my arm and kind of Shopping the idea around, you know, thinking, I'll just start small, two little, two little skews, two little flavors of bars in Canada, in Toronto, in Canada, and kind of, you know, take little baby steps. Um, but the two skews become, became three, uh, became four in three months. And then the little kind of baby brand in 24 months smashed all records in Canada in terms of a new brand launch. And it just, Got to be a pretty crazy ride of of growth.
1: That's fantastic. Um, so you talked about what was—I don't know if I want to call it a fad or a trend back in the day, but I remember that we were we were all mm-hmm. we were all eating these things like snack wells, right? And yep. told snack you know, wells, yeah, yeah, fat causes heart attacks, and yep. obviously, product innovators and formulators, what did they do? Got to replace the fat with something to replace it with sugar. Yeah. So whatever that was, a fat or a trend, it's behind us now. And so now there seems to be generally a lot of consumer education and consumers wanting to eat healthier. And then a lot of that trend is around reducing their sugar. So do you think that is a, a long-term trend? And what are what are you hearing from, you know, customers and consumers and potential customers?
0: Well, for sure. You know, when I first read Nina's book, it was March 2016 on the plane to Natural Product Expo West. And, and that day, you know, I, I started adding fats to my diet, walk the, the consumer show and realize or the trade show and realize that there is an undercurrent of, of good fats because there was more and more, um, more and more meats and, and kind of butters and rich creams and yogurts. Um, but there was no beacon brand that, that kind of made it permissible and more kind of broad scale to have fats in your diet. So, um, but I knew it was coming because that book was so clear that the science has been all wrong. Like I knew it was coming so by the time I launched, which was September 17, so about a year and a half later, keto didn't quite exist. Keto really came with a vengeance in May 2018. So I kind of took the big leap of I'm going to uh, promote good fats and low sugar, and and that's kind of like that's what I'm going to do. And then the keto diet who's, that's been around for a 100 years – came with a vengeance and really kind of increased significantly the awareness of good fats. So I think the timing of when I launched and, and then how I kept innovating very, very quickly. So my first bar and packaging are very different than where we are today with rapid, small innovations. So I think the, the, the trend for, so now it's a whole different world. I mean, you have anywhere from 30 to 80% of consumers at one time are cutting sugar or following keto or following low carb and really trying to eat better we still have a massive issue with obesity it's beyond an epidemic when i was at weight watchers it was 51% of the population was either obese or uh clinically obese or overweight now it's pushing 70% our kids lifespan is shorter than ours it's a it's a monumental problem further made worse with covid um, 19 as you know, any metabolic syndromes pre-existing conditions means you're much more susceptible so it's uh, we have a massive massive problem that um just you know c- lowering your carbohydrates uh, your simple and complex and eliminating your sugars and just you know eating good fats um addresses so it's mm-hmm. it's here to stay you know we're we're never you can quote me I, in the next 100 years i i can't imagine a world where we're going to be like oh just kidding let's go back to eating sugar <laughs> oh no we're going back to carbs like that was just a fad um and we already know that you know we have too much protein consumption and and too much protein at one time converts into sugar anyway in in your liver so you know there's only Kind of three macronutrients. So, you know, unless something changes, we're never going to go back to kind of like, oh, you know, let's, let's now let's, let's go back to carbs. (laughs) Although the, um, you know, the issue, we still have a big, big battle because the, the dietary food guides, unfortunately, are not yet representative of, um, diets that, that do work, um, to help, uh, overall kind of health, especially if you're diabetic and the food guides, Canada, U S and the world. Um, uh, we, there's still a lot of work to do before we get to a place where those are kind of caught up with, uh, with the science.
1: So here, here in the, here in the U.S., to your point, FDA has specifically targeted a 25% sugar reduction. So it's, it's not just consumer driven. It's also, you know, regulators are, are, are concerned about this from a health standpoint as well. So if you look at your product line, Susie, and how that plugs into the needs of consumers to reduce their sugar, uh, tell our listeners about your product line and how and how it fits lifestyles and, and eating uh, behaviors of consumers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All of our products from all of our bars our original truffle bars because they have this really kind of light, fluffy core. So we call them our original and they're more like a truffle melt in your mouth. To our new Chewy Nutty that we just launched and to our shakes. They all have uh, the macronutrients in common, not more than one or two grams of sugar. In, in totality in the bar, um, uh, moderate proteins, very low net carbs. So not more than five grams of net carbs. So net carbs are your carbohydrate minus your fiber. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and we have a really, you know, if you, if you kind of, uh, dissect our brand that the balance of fiber and fat is, seems to be optimized for, uh, for kind of overall driving, um, driving a good balance of, of feeling full and, um, and, and being a, um, a, a nice healthy balance for the body. Um, that being said, uh, there's a lot of products right now that are reducing sugar, but you're still getting, you know, 10 grams of sugar by portion or five grams in some snacks or 25 grams. And those are astronomical numbers. So I'm, I'm seeing daily on on LinkedIn, some brands are like, oh, you know, they're, they're trying to kind of tout lower sugar, but you know, you really have to count your grams of sugar and ours are one to two. And I think if you if you want to really make a dent in in uh, in reducing your sugar, you you really have to aim for much 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 lower sugar food choices. And our bars are just you know an amazing at, at one to two is just an amazing option.
1: Mm-hmm. And you and you do shakes as well. So how does that play into you know consumer diet?
0: yeah so so bars are a a great category to be in because especially pre covid with on the go nutrition and being out and about and heading to the gym and heading to your yoga class and your hike um and you know the the snacks for for adults and for kids so bars was like the first point of entry and it allowed us to get rapid first of all it's a delicious bar like no other you know, I think we all had our fair share of not great tasting bars, um, uh, I guess protein bars. Um, and then you don't mm. want to eat chocolate bars all day long. So, uh, that was a great way to build brand awareness and trial super rapidly. And then, uh, a compliment to that is shakes to make, you know, protein shakes in the morning and a shake on the go. Um, a lot of shakes are still being made with lots and lots of fruit. And I think like people are becoming aware that fruit is loaded with sugar, so we're uh, we're certainly tapping into that. Our, our shakes are, you know, you put one scoop in, you mix it ideally with cream or almond milk, and and you can still do milk and water. But if you you, you put in a little bit of cream instead, uh, and if you are following a low carb diet or a ketogenic diet, then it's a, it's absolutely the perfect snack because you're getting a, a high fat. Very low net carb again, less than five grams and one, one or two grams of sugar in your shake. So it's a, it's, you know, kind of perfect snack.
1: So you touched on this a little bit. Uh, what, whether you want to call them first generation, uh, high protein bars, low sugar bars, whatever you want to call them. Um, yeah, I've, I've tried some. They're, I don't know how to describe them kind of chalky or maybe almost. More some, some maybe had a chemical flavor or something like that. So um, you're in a category that's growing: uh, reduced sugar, keto, all of those things. But how do you uh, is is this how you stand out? Just better taste, or are there other ways that companies can differentiate themselves in this very crowded category?
0: Well, the bar the bar category is incredibly aggressive and challenging category to go and play in. It's a category where, you know, everyone kind of wants to jump in. If you go to natural product expo, I think you'll kind of see, you know, a hundred to 400 new bar brands and bar options being presented every year. So it's certainly not a category that's for the faint of heart in terms of choosing to kind of, you know, choosing to go play in there. Um, but it's an important category to be in if you're wanting to change consumer habits, and we happen to have done something that no one has done before, which is to load a bar with a lot of good fats, take out all the sugar. It took me a year and a half to figure out how to get the bar to to hold together, because unfortunately, carbohydrates and sugars are binding agents. So that's, you know, the, the difference with a chocolate bar and, and our bar is we have no sugar and we have cleaner ingredients, but it's got to hold together some way. And all of the, the protein bars um, or just, you know, oat bars, granola bars, energy bars, nut bars, they're all held together with sugar as a binding agent. And I was like, no nope so i was told you know multiple times by multiple kind of labs and co-packers not not possible like nothing's going to hold it together and i had to work with two phd's to figure out how to get the fats to bind when there's no binding agents um but that combination created a bit of magic right where um you suddenly have the opposite of the low fat not great tasting foods of the 90s that we remember, you have the opposite. You have high fat, which gives flavor to your foods. You don't need the sugar when you have the right fat and fibers and and we have the right level of proteins too. Then it just all comes together and the bars taste amazing. So it's just like a win-win-win um, that I think, you know, prior to a couple of years ago, no one had really kind of thought about.
1: So is it, I guess it's fair to say, uh, how you, how you've managed to stand out in a very crowded category is innovation, doing something that other folks just weren't doing. Yeah. And, and ultimately even having to solve that technical challenge with your two PhD friends.
0: Yeah. There is a white space. You know, we, we kind of all know every category has the satisfiers and disfat satisfiers. I think, you know, it's a known, a known entity that the protein energy bar, had uh, dissatisfiers and tastes when, uh, 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 unless, you know, it was just loaded with, you know, 40 grams of sugar. Uh, other than that, the bar choices had a dissatisfier with taste. And then I was able to kind of innovate in a way and to come up with a bar that actually holds together that tastes really, really good and has the right nutrients that you feel really, really full. You know, you eat one bar and you're so satiated and uh, the consumer feedback is exceptional because they they get so excited of like, I ate a bar and three hours later, I'm still full, which is very different than just, you know, a quick snack bar where you're suddenly still craving a couple of hours later for for something more. So I think we've just had, you know, the perfect innovation at the right time I think I did a few things right. You know, I called it initially Susie's Good Fats and then we moved to Love Good Fats after, after that. But, you know, having kind of good fats in the name and, and love, um, the packaging I think was, you know, breakthrough enough. We've iterated and we're making another change. So you'll see new packaging rolling out in the next couple months. Um, so we've dev, and then I started with two flavors and then launched two more, 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 more, and now we're just uh, launching Chewy Nutty. And then I've launched two shakes and we're still working away on innovation with lots more stuff to come perhaps for the next podcast.
1: I'm here with Susie York, who is CEO of Love Good Fats. Um, Susie sounds like your company didn't just integrate it, it. didn't just innovate at the beginning, it's continuously innovating. And so what what do you think is the role and importance of innovation at Love Good Fats? And, you know, what are, what are sort of the mindsets and, and qualities of the people that, that you look for, that you admire as top innovators?
0: Yeah, well, innovation is in, in packaged goods and in many, many categories, innovation is your lifeline. And it's really, really key to always culturally keep uh, a focus on innovation. There's, um, uh, for us in the last three years, we, we've launched, you know, over 50 different SKUs between Canada and the U.S., and we've expanded our line, and we're going to continue to drive more, more flavors, formats, and category extensions. And that is really, really key. Um Innovation can also be very costly and can 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 you know has a high fail rate just overall, whether it's the best consumer packaged goods company in the world or startups, the fail rates are really high. so you you kind of have to have that right balance of doing the right work up front to get some consumer input and validation, having some good insight and knowing how to interpret da- data and feedback and then being quick and fast to adapt when you put it in the market and you're not hitting the key success metrics you thought to kind of figure out what's going on. And you have to pace your innovation. You know, we launched with two – we knew that two flavors was not enough in Canada, so that's why as soon as the two flavors took off really fast, I raised another round and had two more because less than than four SKUs – in the crowded space of ours would be very challenging. So we all, like I knew that and my board, and my, you know, all my group of advisors. So you, you kind of have to to have this right balance. Uh, if you launch too many SKUs, then like eight SKUs all at once, you may not have enough awareness and trial of your, your smaller SKUs, and then they may die. And if you launch too few, then, you know, your brand may not make it. Uh, so there's this fine line, and I think that's why you you and its and it's expensive. you know, a failed launch in the US would be costly. So it's this fine line, but you, you and you kind of have to kind of know how to maneuver through that in 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 your categories that you choose to enter. Um, but the mindset of innovation is really, really key because every day, We're innovating. So it's not just, you know, launching products, but, you know, everything we've touched has been new. So I, you know, I was age 50 and I'd never really kind of spend time on balance sheets and, um, on raising money. And I, so I spent the last three years pretty much innovating as I started a company and had shareholder agreements and raise angel money and then institutional um moved offices three times. We, you know, hired twenty people in in the span of, of ten or eight or ten months. And that spirit of, well, wait a minute, we don't know how to do this. No one's done this before. How do we do this? What do we do? We don't have enough people. We don't know. We've never really done this. You kinda have to have that mindset of, well, okay, we'll figure it out. And that's been really mm, key.
1: Mm, mm. <laughs> So so much innovation going on at your company continuously. Um, talk to talk to our listeners about uh, these terms success versus failure. What do those mean to you? How do you how do you view those in your experience, Susie? And can you share any can you share any stories on, on both sides of that equation?
0: Yeah, well, for sure. Like um, the, the the biggest kind of failure uh, fail we've had uh, in our company is back when it was just you know employees no employees because I wasn't paid for the first I don't know year and a half, uh, so we had really just me working um, and uh, and and our, our board uh, supporting me and. Um, I'd spent eight months with our co-packer, a co-packer that had gracefully kind of picked up the phone and said, yeah, it looks like you have a good idea. And then we did 80 different prototypes and yep, we signed off on one of them and presented to Whole Foods and they were like, yep, this is great and UNFI and Purity and then uh, ready to go, you know, get sales kits and kind of go, go. And then we couldn't get the machines to make the bar, so I I drove uh, six Mm. hours away and 7 a.m. and I'm standing on the production floor with my white coat and my fishnet hat and kind of just waiting for the bars to come off the line and my iPhone ready to take pictures. And we just couldn't make the bars at a, at a production scale. And 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 for most kind of bars, when you're moving to production, it's you know it's a hundred thousand per per day. So um, if you want it, if if you want to kind of get at the at the price point that will work at at the larger stores. So. So it's a large production, and a lot of my savings were in that production, and I just we just couldn't make the bar. So I was like, "Oh my God, what do you mean? You know, like like that's not possible." Like we, you know, it worked. It worked in the pilot runs and the small batch runs. Like what's going on? And all the all, all the t's had been crossed and i and i's dotted. So. That was a, a, a pretty kind of memorable, um, April Saturday where the company nearly shut down at that, that, that Sunday. But, um, mm. you know, Rolodex picked up the phone, pulled in every single, went back to all the lists of co-packers, every single phone call you can imagine. And I was pointed to another co-packer that it initially, you know, w- what, you know, they, like these co-packers, they, they, they get calls every week of, of, of people with ideas to come up with bars and, and they kind of say no, right? They just, they, they, they can't be entertaining every kind of new bar idea, but they, you know, the, the founder said, Hey, you know, there's no bar we've not been able to make and we'll, let's see what we can do. And then in 11 magical weeks, we went from, you know, a company will be shut down to, oh, my God, there's some bars rolling off the line, and they melt in your mouth. So we still had, you know, half the production went to food banks because they were not on spec, and then we kind of had to make more tweaks, more tweaks. So there, there's still kind of a lot more to that story and, uh, uh, as to where, you know, we had to iterate. But that was our first kind of big fail um, and, you know, I kind of just dug in and said, you know, we'll find a way. So, you know, in packaged goods back when, when, when I started, you know, the, the larger companies, whether it was the Nielsen or IRIs, IRIs of the world would always do kind of mortem analysis. And there is anything from 60 to 80% of the innovation would not make it and still be on the shelf five years later. So it was kind of called the, you know, the innovation success or fail rate. It was really high, and in the multinational, and still is, and in the multinationals that I worked worked at, there was definitely a high focus on um, learning from why some innovations don't kind of manage to stay on the shelf, um, and others, you know, do. And and sometimes it's okay, you know, sometimes you'll launch. A line extension, and it'll it'll have a role for a while, you know, whatever it is, tide free or sunlight free or whatever the 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 the, the trends are. And your competitor will launch something that's meeting a, a an insight and a consumer need, and you'll launch it or you'll go first. They'll copy you, and you know that that need and that trend may kind of go away, but it served a purpose. That line extension served a purpose for a while. And you were in the news for a while. Like you had a new product on the shelf. You had the new tag on it. You had some marketing that said new and you broke through the clutter. You got, you know, more shelf space versus a competitor. And it played a role for a while for you to stay competitive and and earn your share of space and share of mine. Um, And other times you want it to be forever, uh, whether it's, you know, Heinz Organic or, you know, something that you think will be a forever trend. And for a bunch of reasons, your launch doesn't really take off. And then, you know, you wind up eventually not having strong enough velocities to stay on the shelf. So there's a bunch of scenarios where innovation comes and goes, brands come and go. Um, and when you don't want them to go and are counting on them to do really well and they don't, that's where it becomes very costly to the company. And you want to try to minimize that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's an old saying, particularly in the technology world, fail fast. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're is that what you mean by that, uh, Susie?
0: Yeah, well, the I think now, yes, the world now is making you fail fast because the planograms are unforgiving. You know, they change every six months. And if you don't meet the thresholds, you will fail fast. You'll be in a store. And then six months later, the buyer will tell you, you no longer will be in the store. So I think the mm. world has has made it that you know you kind of have one chance once you're getting to the larger accounts that refresh their planograms every six months you kind of once you're in those big leagues you you better kind of make sure that your positioning product price value and awareness and trial like your core four strategic pillars are really strong or you will you will fail fast uh uh even if you don't want
1: to, yeah absolutely, so with all the innovation that uh that you've seen in in your career susie what what what's the range of uh coming up with a concept and then concept to consumption, getting it all the way out to store shelves and to consumers what's the what are the time frames you've seen and do you have any tips for compressing those time frames?
0: Yes, for sure. If anything the time frames in natural uh are ex- are getting longer and I was at a, a CEO top to top uh work session with a retailer recently and that seemed to be the consensus is that um historically, you know, pharmaceuticals had the longest and pharma had the longest lead time, so it was 2 to 3 years minimum. From the moment the head office said, Hey, you know, we're going to come up with this cream that has, you know, this din and does this thing, um, to being on the shelf. Um, package goods was about a year and a half because you really have six months from the time, you know, there's six months that's gone right away from the time you present it to the shelf. There's six months right away that that's just the retailer lead time. Um, And, but you were able to a couple years ago, you know, uh, if you timed it right, you know, go to, you know, we kind of, we kind of produced in August and September 1st, we're on the shelf at Whole Foods uh, here at the, in Whole Foods Canada and the, in the six uh, stores. So you could move your speed to shelf really fast if you presented it a couple months ago, a a couple months versus six months. Like the timing was shorter in natural. And then, of course, the, you know, the mom and pop natural stores can be even quicker um, if you, you don't go to distributors. But the reality now is even in natural, the distributors have their lead times that are, you know, have moved from two to four to six months. Um, and then the, the banners have their lead time. So even in natural, things are slowing down a little bit. You can still move really quick with your mom and pop store, you know, in, in a local, uh, and a, and a local area where the stores make decisions, not the head office, but the lead times are getting longer. Um, so it's really what you can do at your end is compress your timing. So instead of taking, you know, a year to come up with an idea all the way to packaging to sales samples, you can compress that timing a lot but it's this fine line. If the more you compress doing your homework on your end, the higher the risk that it may not work once it hits the shelf. So you kind of have to dance the, you know, the right balance of speed versus being optimal so that um, your innovation does really, really well right off the gate. And then you can, you can innovate further and further.
1: Mm, mm. So it's about balance and uh, talking about the speed part of balance. What what do you what what are some of the biggest ongoing challenges and speed bumps that you see in innovating in your particular space and category, Susie?
0: Well, the innovating for Love Good Fats is a pretty exciting kind of space to be in because the brand positioning and mission allows the brand to innovate in so many categories. The, the consumer naturally gives us permission to innovate in such a wide and broad range of categories where it's just like, yeah, that kind of makes sense, right? To have, you know, whether it's like ice creams and yogurts and a whole bunch of foods that they're like, yeah, like that kind of makes sense. Like a high fat, low sugar version, of that that would be really yummy. Uh, that'd be great if, uh, and we have, you know, a list of 22 categories that we're, you know, kind of doing some consumer work to see, you know, uh, could we innovate and the consumer is giving, and the retailers are giving us permission to innovate in, in a wide, wide range. Um, so what's key for us, as a brand is to kind of figure out which ones do we want to extend into when and at what pace. And of course the price of entry is the product taste. you know, we, we would never innovate in a category first that's off strategy. So that's off the list, but within the categories that we have permission to go, the, the, the the product taste has to be uh, has to kind of meet our criteria of being kind of bar none better than anything that's out there, and still meet of our our specs and our macros. So we're kind of working through that right now um, in terms of category extensions. The, we have job one to do, which is to make sure that our eight, eight bars that are, uh, on, you know, on the shelves and rolling onto shelves in the U.S., that those are well supported and they do well. Our, our truffle, our truffle skews and now our new Chewy Nutty. So that's kind of job one, our shakes, which are at Kroger already. Um, so make sure that we don't get too distracted, uh, and then these are real, well supported as we work on on future future category extensions um, that'll kind of meet our criteria.
1: Mm-hmm. So you've talked a lot about line extensions and different flavors. Um, anything else you can share with our listeners on you know what's next or what's long term yes. for you and and for Love Good Fats? For
0: sure. In terms of innovation, uh, there's uh, you know our our kind of our core truffle original bars with the the core that melts is is kind of the, the 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 foundation of the brand. The three new chewy nutty are I think game changer. I I don't think there's any bar out on the market that is as tasty, only one gram of sugar, and uh all super clean ingredients, no aftertaste, no sugar alcohols, like a really unbelievable chewy, nutty bar. Um and then our shakes, which especially if you have them with with cream or milk or or, or almond milk, just like take the take these categories at another, these segments at another level in terms of High ground for taste. We literally have 22 categories that we're looking at in terms of possible line extensions. Um, we're kind of prioritizing, uh, you know, where can we get the best product? Where is there white space? Where do we have first mover advantage? So I can't kind of share beyond those three, those three segments where we're going next, but perhaps at the next podcast, I'll have some updates for you.
1: All right. Well, we look forward to uh, inviting you back uh, to the show to uh, to hear about those updates. Wonderful. Susie, one of the questions I ask for all of our guests on the podcast is what what advice would you give to two different sets of folks? First, people who are already in the food and CPG space innovating and second, new people just starting their careers in this space. What what advice would you give those two sets of folks?
0: For, for folks who want to innovate in the space, um, there are uh, the the piece of advice is um, first of all to start with your idea. Uh, so just move the idea from you know something on paper to getting actual samples, working on the packaging, working on the name, the brand positioning, and the product basically. So just take that first step. And move it from idea to kind of real uh, samples and, and positioning. And then do your, do you enough of the whole, your homework with consumers and retailers? Because I know initially, you know, once you have that product and that positioning, you get so excited and you want it on the shelf right away. But. It really the first half of the race is to get it on the shelf and you, you certainly will do the high fives and celebrate when you finally do get that listing and you take the picture standing at the shelf. And, you know, I don't think there was a, a, a bigger high for me than that first day at, at Whole Foods U S and I, you know, I flew down and I, I, I took a picture in my pink t-shirt like that was a beaming moment. Um, and that's, that's a key part of it, but that's really half the race. The second half is that you have enough velocities to stay on the shelf. So you have to balance doing your homework, enough on the prototypes and shopping the idea, get consumer, you know, I relied on consumer research because that's my background. Um, but try to kind of balance getting enough consumer feedback and as an entrepreneur being open to what the consumer is saying to kind of make your idea even stronger and stronger. So you can both start the race and kind of finish the race with your product. So, uh, that's a, what I would, that's my piece of advice for, um, for other folks like me that kind of have a, a burning desire to launch a new product. Um, my daughter's 21. Uh, if you're starting your career and you one day want to, you know, have your own brand or, or launch your own brand, I would really, uh, suggest to start your career in, in consumer packaged goods, uh, at, at the larger multinationals. I, I know it may, it may seem boring I, with the exciting world of startups out there and, 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 you know, the world of, of social media and all these kind of tech jobs and startup jobs and, a whole bunch of kind of, you know, more exciting things than going to work at a head office of a multinational maybe, but, um but you learn the basics and you learn kind of the, you know, the discipline approach to positioning and product and price value and monthly brand reviews and business reviews and, and annual marketing plans and, and business reviews. And you, you learn the discipline of thought and how, Consumer behaviors work and compelling consumer insights to have creative that will break through the clutter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, there's a lot of shiny objects. There's a lot of, you know, agencies that all say, you know, we, we kind of know how to do this and we'll, we'll come up with this and that. But, um, the discipline of working at a, at, at the head office of the consumer packaged goods where you're in charge of growing that brand profitably, uh, it's a tough game. And if you can spend a couple of years in your career in that tough game and you're not risking losing your house because you mortgage your house to launch your product, that's a pretty cool way to kind of start. Um, you can mortgage your house later, <laughs> but take a couple of years to <laughs> learn the basics.
1: Hmm. yeah learn 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 on the company's dime so to yeah. speak
0: and do a good job so, you know and you, you know that it's like it's kind of a win-win you know drive profitable road for the company and 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 kind of learn and then you know you can kind of venture out in your way if uh, if that's what you kind of want to do and it took me 35 years but uh, a lot of people will move quicker I'm sure
1: great advice So, Susie, before we go into wrap-up, any other advice or or words of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: The last little bit is, you know, it's a a tough world out there. We're, you know, we're doing this interview month eight, I think, in in COVID-19. That Mm. certainly had a, a massive impact on innovation. We didn't talk about that too much. but. Uh, it'll, it's changing the game in a, in a big way. It's making awareness and trial, and new brand launches, and new innovation, even, even tougher to break through the clutter and have the the bare minimum awareness and trial you need to launch. Um, consumers are, you know, going into stores with a mask and 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 you know, it seems you know even protective gear to just kind of walk in and walk out and and they do their list before, so they're not in exploration mode to kind of shop around and discover, which is foundational to the natural product industry and to innovators and, and emerging brands. So that's all, all gone, uh, in a big way. And it's not for a month, you know, we're on month eight. So, um, I think, uh, you know, you kind of have to balance, a, everything with the with the realities of what's going on today and be ready to pivot pivot change shift adapt 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 um, because the the world changes pretty quick and uh, and you have to be on your toes if you want your company and your brand to remain you know viable and growing and uh, with a lot of vitality.
1: Good advice in these uh, challenging, challenging times. So I'd like to thank my guest, Susie York, who is CEO and founder of Love Good Fats. Sounds like a really exciting company growing rapidly. Check them out. Their products are now in national distribution at a number of the big chains. So Susie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's
0: been my pleasure and thanks for having me, Gary. It's been so much fun.
1: Thanks for listening to C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters CTOC, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play.